we've completed our 39th year of the Personal Computer Show last week. Today is August the 3rd, 2022. We start our 40th year. We thank you, the listeners, who have supported us. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Meta, a.k.a. Facebook, faces lawsuit for allegedly collecting patient health data without consent. Facebook may have violated patient privacy laws. Meta may have scooped up sensitive medical information without consent. Two proposed class action lawsuits accused the company and hospitals of violating HIPAA, the California Invasion of Privacy Act, and other laws by collecting patient data without consent. Meta's Pixel analytic tracking tool allegedly sent health statuses, appointments, details, and other data to Facebook when it was present on patient portals. In one lawsuit from last month, a patient said Pixel gathered data from the UC San Francisco and Dignity Health portals that was used to deliver ads related to heart and knee issues. The second lawsuit from June is broader and claims at least 664 providers shared medical info with Facebook through Pixel. Meta requires that sites using Pixel obtain the right to share data before sending it to Facebook, but the plaintiffs claim Meta refused to enforce its policies. It placed Pixel on the facility's websites despite knowing the kind of data it would collect according to the lawsuits. The lawsuits aren't guaranteed to achieve class action status, and as such, lawsuits really provide large payouts to individuals. If successful, though, the legal action could prove costly to Meta. They're asking for damages on behalf of all Facebook users whose health care providers rely on Pixel, and that could include millions of people. They also follow a string of privacy-related U.S. legal action against the social media giant. Meta is facing a District of Columbia Attorney General suit over Cambridge Analytica's collection of more than 70 million Americans' personal data. The company is also grappling with lawsuits over its deactivated facial recognition system and only this year settled a 2012 class action suit over the use of tracking cookies. These latest courtroom battles suggest that concerns about Meta's data gathering practices are far from over, even as the company makes its own effort to crack down on misuse. Cloud storage company Backblaze Life Expectancy Report for Hard Disk Drives Cloud storage company Backblaze is providing consumers with interesting practical data 
on what one can expect from a hard disk drive's life expectancy. The company looked at life expectancy data for all major brand hard disk drives within its servers, including products from companies like HGST, Seagate, Toshiba, and Western Digital. This, statistically at least, answers that all-important question of how long would this hard disk drive last. The results? There's more to a product than its sticker price and a brand name might suggest. Mileage across hard disk drive brands varies wildly, sometimes even among models and across capacities. Backblaze was generous enough to provide data on various 4TB, 8TB, 12TB, and 14TB hard drives. Backblaze took its analysis as far back as April 2013 and analyzed all hard drives they commissioned into work in a high enough number that allowed them to apply the Kaplan-Meier life expectancy curve. This curve, which has its roots in biological science, takes into account the number of subjects that have survived a treatment among all those that received it. There's no issue applying it to other fields. Backblaze analysis for four terabyte hard disk drives focus on two models, the HGST Megascale and the Seagate ST4000, sold simply as a desktop hard disk drive, which were operational from 2013 through 2015. HGST was absorbed by Western Digital Corporation back in 2012, but hard drives with their stickers are still available for purchase. 81% of the Seagate drives survived, or 19 out of every 100 Seagate drives failed, of course, from which perspective we're looking at, and as to HGST, 97 out of 100 survive. There are many more things that go into a purchase decision other than how long will this component last. Things like, how does it perform? How easy is it to buy? And more importantly, how much does it cost? Are unavoidable questions for consumers looking for, of course, the best bang for the buck. In this case, the HGST drives cost between 1.2 and 1.5 times more than the equivalent capacity Seagate. The Seagate drives were also easier for Backblaze to purchase. They also had to take into account product positioning. HGST drive belong in the enterprise segment where reliability is paramount. The same isn't true for desktop hard disk drive Seagate drives. These elements help explain both the difference in cost and the higher reliability of one drive over the other, and highlight the difficulties in choosing the right piece of hardware. Backblaze has other metrics to consider. While the average consumer would simply swap the failed drive and be done with it, Backblaze's scale means they replaced around 4,200 more Seagate drives than HGST counterpart, 700 more drives a year, or around two more drives per day, at an estimated 30 to 40 minutes per day. That's a lot of technicians' time. At 8 terabytes, Backblaze compared two Seagate drives, the consumer version of it and the enterprise version of it. What's most interesting between these two models is that they defy your expectations. The consumer drive showcases a better, yep, I repeat that, the consumer drive showcases a better life expectancy than the enterprise model.
at odds with the general product segmentation and sometimes mission-critical usage of enterprise drives. This means that the two-year warranty on the first drive is slapped on a model that's actually more reliable than the warranty on the five-year protected Seagate drive. In general, Backblaze's data shows that 95% of the consumer gear hard disk drives survive compared to 93.6% of the enterprise models. The 12 terabyte drives is where the business gets serious. In this category, Backblaze again compared drives from Seagate, the Exos X14 and the Exos X16 against the HGST 12 terabyte model, which may also be found with Western Digital sticker, by the way. As a rule of thumb, the higher the drive capacity, the more recently it was manufactured. All three models showed a 98% life expectancy, and all of them carry the same five-year warranty, with the survival scores being what they are. That's one less factor to consider when choosing the best model for you. You can now give more weight to pricing and or performance. As for the 14 terabyte models, Backblaze managed to compare life expectancy for all three major hard disk drive brands operating today. The Toshiba 14 terabyte enterprise model, the Western Digital 14 terabyte model, and the Seagate 14 terabyte X16 model. All of them showcase excellent reliability with an over 99% life expectancy across brands. Seagate once again was trailing the other manufacturers, but the margin there is so slim that it's most negligible. Compare 1% failure rates for Seagate's 14 terabyte hard disk drives with a 19% failure of the 4 terabyte model mentioned, and you'll see how far the company and hard disk drive technology in general has come. Toshiba drives does suggest increased failures that would be expected starting from around the 20-month mark. Backblaze data provides an interesting, data-supported insight into the world of hard disk drives from its position as a cloud provider. Consumers have interesting insights they can glean from these numbers. It seems that Western Digital Discs are generally more reliable than Seagate's, although, again, pricing is king when failure rates are as low as they are for models starting from 12 terabyte mark, that consumers can still find HSGT-branded hard drives in the market for the lowest capacity options showcases the fact that higher capacity, high disk drives are far more likely to have a more recent manufacturing date, taking advantage of improvements to manufacturing technologies, and that all by itself might be a good reason to pay a bit more and opt for higher capacity hard disk drives, especially if you're just buying a drive or two to store data you don't want to lose. Oh yes, just remind everyone, have you done your backup recently? Russia to drop out of International Space Station after 2024. Russia will pull out of the International Space Station after 2024 and focus on building its own orbiting outpost. While not unexpected, it throws into question the future of the 24-year-old space station. It would be extremely difficult to keep it running without the Russians. NASA and its partners 
had hoped to continue operating it until 2030. Yuri Barosov, appointed this month to lead the Russian space agency Roscosmos, added, I think that by that time we will start forming a Russian orbiting station. The space station has long been a symbol of post-Cold War international teamwork in the name of science, but is now one of the last areas of cooperation between the United States and the Kremlin. NASA officials said they had yet to hear directly from their Russian counterparts on the matter. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson issued a statement saying that the agency was committed to the safe operation of the space station through 2030 and continues to build future capabilities to assure our major presence in low Earth orbit. The United States State Department called the announcement an unfortunate development given the valuable professional collaboration our space agencies have had over the years. National Security Council spokesperson said the U.S. is exploring options for dealing with a Russian withdrawal. Russian officials have long talked about their desire to launch their own space station and have complained that the wear and tear on the aging International Space Station is compromising safety and could make it difficult to extend its lifespan. Cost may also be a factor. With Elon Musk's SpaceX company now flying NASA astronauts to and from the space station, the Russian space agency lost a major source of income. For years, NASA had been paying tens of millions of dollars per seat for rise aboard Russian Soyuz rockets. Borisov's predecessor, Dmitry Rogozin said last month that Moscow could take part in negotiations about a possible extension of the station's operations only if the United States lifts its sanctions against Russian space industries. The space station is jointly run by Russia, the United States, Europe, Japan, and Canada. The first piece was put in orbit in 1998 and the outpost has been continuously inhabited for nearly 22 years. It is used to conduct scientific research in zero gravity and test out technology for future journeys to the Moon and Mars. It typically has a crew of seven who spend seven months at a time aboard the station as it orbits about 260 miles above Earth. Three Russians three Americans, and now, currently, one Italian are now on board. The $100 billion-plus complex is about as long as a football field and consists of two main sections, one run by Russia and the other by the United States and the other countries. It was not immediately clear what will have to be done to the Russian side of the complex to safely operate the space station once Moscow pulls out. The design of the station would make it difficult, but not impossible, for the remaining nations to operate it if Russia were to withdraw. What will leaving look like? Will the last cosmonauts simply undock a Soyuz and return to Earth, leaving the Russian built? Will NASA and its international partners have to negotiate to buy them out and continue using them? Can these modules even be maintained without Russian know-how? Running the station after the Russians' bailout could be a nightmare depending on how hard Russia wanted to make it for NASA 
and its remaining partners. If the Russian components of the station were detached or inoperable, the most immediate problem would be how to boost the complex periodically to maintain its orbit. Russian spacecraft that arrive at the station with cargo and crew members are used to help align the station and raise its orbit. It also remains to be seen whether the Russians will be able to launch and maintain their own independent station. Russia has made no visible effort so far to develop its own space station, and the task appears increasingly daunting now among the crisis in Ukraine and the Western sanctions that have limited Russia's access to Western technology. One alternative is to declare victory for the station and use this as an excuse to deorbit it and put the money into exploration. The design of the station would make it difficult, but not impossible for the remaining nations to operate it if Russia were to withdraw. Artificial intelligence discovers alternative physics. How does one know what they don't know? A new Columbia University AI program observed physical phenomena and uncovered relevant variables, a necessary precursor to any physics theory. But the variables it discovered were unexpected. Energy, mass, velocity. These three variables make up Einstein's iconic equation E equals mc squared. But how did Albert Einstein know about these concepts in the first place? Before understanding physics, you need to identify relevant variables. Not even Einstein could discover relativity without the concepts of energy, mass, and velocity. But can variables like these be discovered automatically? Doing so would greatly accelerate scientific discovery. This is the question that Columbia engineering researchers pose to a new artificial intelligence program. The AI program was designed to observe physical phenomena through a video camera and then try to search for the minimal set of fundamental variables that fully describe the observed dynamics. The study was published in the journal Nature Computational Science on July the 25th. After validating a number of other physical systems with known solutions, the scientists inputted videos of systems for which they did not know the explicit answer. The AI system was able to make predictions of variables that were unanticipated. A particularly interesting question was whether the set of variables was unique for every system, or whether a different set was produced each time the program was restarted. If we ever met an intelligent alien race, would they have discovered the same physics laws as we have, or might they describe the universe in a different way? Perhaps some phenomena seem enigmatically complex because we are trying to understand them using the wrong set of variables. In the experiments, the number of variables were the same each time the AI restarted, but the specific variables were different each time. So yes, there are indeed alternative ways to describe the universe, and it is quite possible that our choices aren't perfect. According to the researchers, this sort of AI can help scientists uncover complex phenomena for which theoretical understanding is not keeping pace. With a deluge of data, areas ranging from biology to cosmology, while they use video data in this work, 
any kind of array data source could be used. Radar arrays or DNA arrays, for example. This work is part of Lipson and Fu Foundation interested in creating algorithms that can distill data into scientific laws. Past software systems could instill free-form physical laws from experimental data, but only if the variables were identified in advance. But what if the variables are yet unknown? Fascinating. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell with his IT Pro series. Price increases claimed as inflation. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's the time where we get down to business. This is where we talk about the IT professional, the world of professional IT, and how it impacts you. And in this case, I'm going to talk about one of the recent items that came out of Gartner. What is Gartner? They are a leading IT analyst, IT research group. Uh, They do a lot of different projections as far as where the IT world, the professional world is going. How do companies deal with their vendors, their different products that they have in-house, the IT products, different software packages and stuff like that. There's a lot of different things that they do analysis on. And one of the things that they have noted is that recently, uh, we're talking in the last six months, a lot of different vendors that have annual contracts or multi-annual contracts, okay, so one-year or maybe two-year or three-year contracts, all of a sudden the prices for renewal are being bumped up. And we're not talking little amounts. We're talking a matter of 10, 20, 30% over the course of just a year. And some of this can be kind of scary. Some of this can kind of have an impact on us immediately where we go, what? Okay, so last year we paid whatever it is, $100 per seat. What do we mean by seat? That would be each individual that's using the software. And this year, we're charging $130 per seat. Now, you may be sitting there, and you may be saying, okay, well, that's that's not too bad. Except if you've got 1,000 seats, that moves that mark from, yes, $100,000 to $130,000. That's, that's a steep jump. So the excuse they're giving is inflation. And yes, inflation has been coming along. And inflation is something that it's hard to predict. It's hard for someone to sit there at a company and say, we need to make profit on this not only today, but a year from now. Or or even worse, two years from now. Oh, yeah, three years from now. So there's a lot of different speculation based on where we're sitting with the financial economy, the the worldwide economy, but also the national economy. So this is something that's going to be a big sticker shock for people. Where does this come into play? So your software contracts? Yeah. Your repair contracts? Yeah. Your various... Service agreements of all kinds of types, whether we're talking for services like web development, web hosting, P 
PC support, network support, all of this, everything, every area that you can imagine has a potential for some serious maintenance and support contract fees being increased. So what are we going to do about this? Well, if you go into this, if you've got some kind of contract, if you are in a situation where you have somebody who's writing out an actual contract with you, that's the time where you can have some leverage, where you have some power to question this. You go, whoa, wait a second. And this is something that even Gartner says, you need to sit down and you need to make a counter offer. And sometimes those counter offers are going to be kind of harder than normal. Why? Because, yes, those vendors are also reacting. They're reacting to the idea that they are going to have to speculate on how bad the economy is going to continue with inflation. My key concern here is that you, when you're asking for this information, and this is whether you're an IT professional or somebody who's in a position to bargain over this, that you question them. A simple answer of, well, it's inflation. Okay. It's got to be passed through to the customers. Okay. I want more specific details. I want to understand, okay, so you're telling me that it's going to be a a matter of 20% increase. Are you paying all of your employees 20% more? No? Well, then why are you bumping me up 20%? Why are you doing this? And this is going to be something that you want the specifics. You want to understand this more and more. And when we're talking about, okay, so that contract that's a matter of bumping it up from 100000 to 130000 that I mentioned, okay, you want to understand, are you getting $30,000 a year more in value than you were last year? Or even remotely more value? This is something that we all have to think about. This is something that we all need to address on a personal basis. There's no hiding that we're going through some post-COVID stretching and growing pains, some financial turmoil. When we're paying so much more for gasoline and food and other things in our lives, yes, this is going to have ripple effects all the way through. But you need to understand and don't go uh, go just blindly approving. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, I'm paying more for gas, so I might as well pay more for s- software contracts and hardware contracts. No, question it. There's that whole thing. Question authority. Yes, we, we've heard that so many times over the years. And now, more than ever, I think this is the point in time when we need to start questioning authority, especially when it hits our bottom line our pocketbooks. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Cord cutting is disruptive and is now a big deal. Perhaps you're wondering, why is cord cutting such a big deal? The thing is, cord cutting in the United States reached record levels this year. But let's get back to basics. What is cord cutting? To cut the cord means to cancel your paid TV subscription. Many people nowadays are cutting the cord. Why? 
Well, there are pros and cons on almost everything in life, and let's start with the pros and cons of cord cutting. What are the pros? Allows you to control everything you are watching. You can save money with a cheaper streaming service instead of expensive cable TV. And you can watch simultaneously on more than one device, which is great since second screening is a thing for more than two-thirds of millennials. Well, what are the cons? It can be pricey if you need more than one subscriber. You won't be able to watch local channels. And you need to have some of your personal data available online. One of the best benefits of cost-cutting is the ability to control your viewing experience. First things first. With a cable, you need to sign some kind of contract. In most cases, it's a two-year contract. Imagine paying $100 more for your contract for the next 24 months. That works out to $2,400 right there. When you sign up for cable or satellite TV, you need to go through a credit check. That's one more benefit of streaming. No cable checks, also no rental equipment. You know the box whose remote control you keep misplacing. Well, the cost adds up. No wonder so many people decided to cut the cord. Today, only two out of three U.S. households pay for cable TV. If a U.S. subscriber can save up to $1,200 per year by cutting cable TV, well, the future seems bright for cord cutters. If you want to cut the cord, though, don't rush. There are people who run directly to their pay TV provider and cancel their accounts, and they start researching the alternatives after that. That's not a cool idea. Start with the research first. There are a lot of streaming video options out there. Test the water first before you jump. Now, who are the cord cutters? Most cord cutters are millennials. Gen Z, they are not interested in TV or that much, and they prefer Netflix instead. And then you have Gen X, which says a lot about the future of traditional TV. Traditional pay TV is on shaky ground. 2019 cord cutting statistics say so. There are so many opportunities. Netflix, Hulu, Roku, the list just goes on and on. Streaming is about choice and not everyone can benefit from it. It is a good idea to try streaming video service for a couple weeks. Many of them offer free trials. That's a promising opportunity, a way to give you time to adjust to streaming. How many Americans have cable TV? 119.9 million households in the United States with cable TV during the 2018-2019 season. Cable TV versus streaming TV. Which one would be for you? Or maybe you'll keep both. Some people even have the option to use an antenna, but they decide to go for the streaming package anyway. Now, in case you were wondering, how many people have dropped cable in the United States? Ready for the numbers? 59% of Americans have already cut the cord. When it comes to cord cutting, you have one more important thing to figure out before you cancel your cable subscription. Namely, where am I going to get my internet from? If you choose streaming over cable satellite, you will need an excellent connection. Calculate in advance how many users you anticipate having in your household and choose a company that can give you the best deal. Make sure you pay attention to both the upload and download speed of the internet connection you are about to sign up for. 
Download speed is important for streaming, of course, but what happens if you need to upload some photos or videos online? Now, the two main options in the United States are phone and cable companies. That's one more thing to figure out. The thing is that cable companies generally provide a faster internet connection, but be a smart consumer. Don't let them upgrade you to a plan you never wanted or even knew about. Knowing what you want is a consequence of research done well. Traditional TV is still in power. Yes, it may not be as, well, that wonderful product that, as it used to be years ago when the internet didn't exist, but it's still there. One example of cable strength lies in the fact that it's a primary provider of consumer internet services. As such, it's not only still relevant, but may even help define the Internet of Things in a domestic environment. Who knew cable and Internet could come together? What are the most popular streaming video services? Did you know, in 2018, there were more than 130 video streaming services offered? If there is such a wide variety of options, how do you choose? Make sure you familiarize yourself with the services and prices. The list of online channels and providers is worth spending some time examining. Also, ask the opinion of other cord cutters you know. Chances are, they can share their experiences with you and give you a few tips before you decide. Check, check. Before you decide. The pay TV landscape in the United States is pretty fragmented. If you're thinking of trying some kind of streaming service, the truth is that you will spend some amount of money on a monthly basis, and for this reason, you might want to check what reward cards have to offer when it comes to cashback and opportunities. And one of them is a Discover It card where you can get 5% cashback for streaming service purchases. Canceling your overpriced cable or satellite TV contract might be a challenge. However, nowadays, more and more people choose to take that step and enjoy the freedom of streaming TV. If you are considering cutting the cord, make sure to do the research of alternative services and prices first. Set a trial period and calculate whether switching to streaming video services, well, it makes sense financially for you. Cord-cutting statistics clearly state that more and more users are switching to streaming TV. However, traditional TV is still going strong, and a lot of users get their internet in a bundle with cable. Cord cutting statistics. More and more people are cutting the cord and canceling their traditional cable and satellite. An estimated 5.2 million households intended to end their cable subscriptions by the end of 2021. An estimated 4.9 million people will cut the cord in 2022. Adults ages 18 through 29 are the largest age group without cable, with 34% of them not having subscriptions to satellite or cable TV services. It's predicted there will be a 7% decrease in cable and satellite TV penetration rates by 2030. 56% Americans say they watch cable or satellite TV, according to a 2021 survey. This is down from 76% who said the same thing back in 2015. Of those who don't watch TV via cable or satellite, 71% say they don't need it. 
because they can find the content they want to watch online. 69% say cable and satellite subscriptions simply cost too much, and 45% say they don't watch TV very often in general. 27% of U.S. households intended to cut the cord by the end of 2021. In comparison, 15% of U.S. households canceled their satellite and cable TV subscriptions in 2020, nearly half the cancellation rate of 2021. In 2020, pay TV providers lost 5.1 million subscribers. U.S. adults aged 65 and up have the largest share of cable and satellite TV subscribers. 81% of this group received TV via cable or satellite, the highest of any age demographic and higher than the 56% of all U.S. adults who received their TV this way. This demographic has also seen the least change in percentage from 2015 to 2021. However, the 18 to 29 age group demographic has the highest percentage of adults who have never subscribed to cable or satellite TV. 77% of the U.S. adults over the age of 50 who have cut the cord say they did so because the cost of cable or satellite service is too expensive. It's estimated that a total of 4.9 million people will cut the cord in 2022 bringing the total number of cord cutters up to 55.1 million, or 20.8% of the U.S. adult population. Approximately 10.3% of current cable and satellite TV subscribers will cut the cord in 2022. It's expected that the number of cable TV subscribers is expected to fall from 71 million in 2020 to 56 million in 2025. Streaming service industry revenue hit around $171 billion in 2021 and is expected to reach $252 billion in 2025, nearly doubling in four years. U.S. households' cable and satellite TV penetration rate is expected to decline from 85% in 2016 to 79% in 2030. Comcast is a top cable TV provider with almost 19 million subscribers. AT&T Premium TV comes next with 16.5 million subscribers, followed by Charter Spectrum and Dish Network with about 15.6 million and 8.82 million subscribers, respectively. There are about 71 million cable TV subscribers in the United States as of December 2020. As of 2018, Consumers are paying an average of $92 per month for cable television. It's estimated that cord cutters often save an average of $85 a month by giving up their cable TV subscriptions. Over one-third of so-called cord cutters have never actually used said cord in the first place. This demographic makes up 17% of all U.S. adults and 27% are actual cord cutters who have canceled their satellite and cable subscriptions. 78% of U.S. households have a subscription to Netflix, Amazon Prime, or Hulu. 55% of these households subscribe to more than one of these three platforms as of 2020, up from 43% in 2018 and 20% in 2015. Well, is cable TV losing subscribers? Yes. Cable TV is losing subscribers. 
In 2020, there were about 71 million subscribers to cable TV platforms, and this is expected to fall to 56 million by 2025. In 2021, just 56% of Americans watch cable or satellite TV, and 27% of U.S. households intended to cancel their cable and satellite subscriptions by the end of the year. In contrast, 76% of Americans said they watch cable or satellite TV in 2015, and just 15% said they intended to cancel their subscriptions in 2020. Not only is cable TV actively losing subscribers, it also isn't gaining young new subscribers who are moving out of their own and separating from their parents' subscriptions. These young adults are choosing not to pay for cable or satellite TV in the first place. 44% of U.S. adults have never had a cable or satellite TV subscription, and 61% of them are between 18 and 29 years old. Well, how many people cut the cord every year? Since 2019, about 5 million people have cut the cord every year. In 2019, 4.9 million people canceled their pay TV subscriptions, and in 2020, 5.1 million did the same. It's estimated that another 5.1 million will cut the cord in 2021, and 4.9 million in 2022. These numbers have grown significantly over the years, with 797,000 cutting the cord in 2016, 1.5 million in 2017, and 2.9 million in 2018. Even those who aren't cutting the cord aren't necessarily only watching cable and satellite TV content, as 78% of U.S. households have a subscription to Netflix, Amazon, Prime, or Hulu, whether they have a subscription or not. Well, is the cable industry dying? Well, the sad answer is yes. The cable industry is dying unless cable company executives can devise a new strategy. The industry will likely continue to decline slowly. From 2020 to 2025, the number of cable TV subscribers is expected to fall from 71 million to 56 million, and in 2030, the cable and satellite TV penetration rate in the United States is expected to hit 79%. This is down 7 percentage points from 2017's penetration rate of 85%. At the same time, the streaming services industry is expected to see its revenues nearly double from 2021 to 2025, giving the cable industry an increasingly fierce competitor to overcome. Are streaming services more popular than cable? Are you kidding? The answer is yes. Streaming services are more popular than cable. 56% of Americans say they watch cable or satellite TV, while 78% of U.S. households have subscriptions to Netflix, Amazon, Prime, or Disney. These two statistics aren't mutually exclusive, but they show that more people have streaming services than cable or satellite TV subscriptions. This is especially true with young people between the ages of 18 and 29, and 34% of this age group has cable or satellite TV subscriptions compared to the 81% of the 65 and up senior citizen demographic. While the cable and satellite TV industry is still very present, online TV streaming platforms are quickly overshadowing it. In 2021 alone, 
27% of U.S. households intended to cut the cord and cancel their cable and satellite TV subscriptions. And this rate is growing quickly, as just 15% did the same in 2020. Even those keeping their cords intact are subscribing to streaming services, with 78% of U.S. households subscribing to Netflix, Amazon Prime, or Hulu, and 55% subscribing to more than one. In comparison, 56% of Americans watch cable or satellite TV. Some of the most common reasons for cutting the cord or not subscribing to cable or satellite TV in the first place are that viewers can find everything they want to watch on online streaming platforms, 71%, and that cable and satellite TV costs just too much, 69%. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston with their tech chatter. Shifting ideas in customer service world. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, with I've been noticing something with uh, with tech support, with customer service, with a lot of different things. I'm seeing a shift just in uh, probably I'm going to say the last uh I don't, I don't know if it's been just two months, six months or something, but I've got an idea that something is going on in the workplace with both the high levels of employment, low levels of unemployment, as well as just everything, just as it's starting to come together or whatever, that customer service is kind of stumbling here and there. What are your observations? Well, it's been about a year and a half. When people started working from home, Mm-hmm. Yeah, they maintain the usual hours. How many customer service places are you used to that are twenty four seven? Now mm-hmm. it may be somebody mm-hmm. saying, "Hello, my name is Kevin," <laughs> <laughs> but there's somebody there. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. there are places where you don't expect them to be available, no matter what. Banks, for example. Sure. Yes. There, there are places where you. Do expect them to be there no matter what, like, oh, I don't know, insurance companies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you, if insurance companies, especially because if you've got an accident, you want to get on the phone with them right away. Well, speak of the devil. Yeah. I uh, got a note from, I'm sorry, my main insurer is Geico, where we have a bundle of our car insurance and our homeowners. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, they act as an agent on homeowners, and we've been with Liberty Mutual. Okay. So we got a, we right, got a yeah. gecko, and we got an emu, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I get a note from uh, Liberty Mutual under a Geico umbrella saying, we haven't been paid out of escrow for this next year's uh, homeowner's insurance. Oh, ouch. Okay. So I contacted the bank. Through their mm-hmm. message, you know, it's not exactly an email, but I uh, found a way to get through to them. And in mm-hmm. just a few days, <laughs> they get back to me. <laughs> how how said, long was that few days? Uh, well, uh, three days. <laughs> okay. It yeah. still qualifies as a few, not yeah. not exactly lightning quick. But okay, <laughs> go on. And and they said, oh, we, we never got an invoice. So I thought... They're spending all their money on the bird. <laughs> it's all going into the commercial. So I called Geico. Yeah. And I said, yeah. 
never got paid. But instead of chasing that down, let me know which of the other companies that you agent for mm-hmm. would make sense for my homeowner's insurance. And guy took time. He went through it. He looked at what my coverage was, where I was, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he came up with a price that was $300 a year lower through nice. Travelers. Okay. And we had that executed, mm-hmm. agreed to, endorsed, and invoice on the way to the bank in a phone call. Nice. Okay, so so you had good luck on that side of it. Eventually, yeah, after being told I hadn't paid for my insurance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that has to be heart-stopping, too, because, you know, if... If your mortgage company sets you up with an insurance company, it's it's going to be uh, one that's yeah the, yeah, yeah way up there in price. The, the mortgage company, you bet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, I also uh, got life insurance this week, so I have no small bills anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, man, I I think it's apocryphal. I think there are so many areas in customer service in support. Mm-hmm. where people depend on being able to get a hold of people. And I have to tell you, you're going to find a diamond in a haystack before you can find a phone number and email address at most of these insurance sites. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, and I've, I've experienced, well, you know, I, I, I experienced, this, this goes back a ways. I remember setting up, setting up a, a, a service for my computer within my own company. <laughs> and they went through, they updated the ticket and said it was done, never having called me, never having installed the software. I'm like, are you kidding me? And then I've got, you know, there's there's all of these different, I should explain for everybody out there, they cre- they've got a ticketing software. They, they track everything all the way through. If, if you call up Spectrum, you call up Spectrum, uh, which is the local internet company here, and you have problems day in, day out, you keep calling them, they keep track of that. They know how often you've called them, how often, who talked to you, what did they say, they track everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And anyway, so, yeah. I, went, I went through the gecko to kill the emu and, and sign up with the umbrella. That's Travelers. <laughs> I like that. You've got all of their different, uh, I don't know, Emu Emu is a mascot. The gecko is a, a mascot. Is the umbrella a mascot? Oh, no, it's a logo. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Logo. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I don't mean it's from Lori Goldstein. Lori, I don't even know. Who's Lori Goldstein? She has the logo brand on QVC. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, TV trivia. Y- yes. I, I, you know, I, I think I've watched QVC probably, I think back when I had my appendix out the, uh, for about 15 minutes when I was in the hospital. Well, if you want a replacement appendix, they'll put it on a 5 pay plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So uh, hit or miss on, on, on tech support, you think, or? Oh, tech support had, is always terrible. You know, your ticket that was unresolved, you probably fixed it yourself before they read the ticket. I, I didn't. I didn't have access to do that, which was, oh. yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a bummer. But that's what another kind of hacker are you really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't hack my office computers. <laughs> thumb, thumb drive. <laughs> 
As for now, this is uh, Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation on cybersecurity. Thursday, August the 4th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Amja Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, August the 5th, meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi, and their website is acgnj.org. The Kingsbite Computer Club has a meeting Tuesday, August the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, August the 11th. Meeting time at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, August the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is limac.org. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.